There was a maiden who went astray In the golden dawn of her life's young day She had more passions and heart than head And she followed blindly when fond love led And love unchecked is a dangerous guide To wander at will by a fair girl's side The Woman's Sphere, January 1901 as a social work student starting my training in 1970, there was actually very little in our course about adoption. What we now understand as issues around identity, around loss, around genealogical bewilderment, they were not psychological concepts that were present in the training of social workers up until the mid to late 1970s. In 1974, I read in Time magazine that a woman named Florence Fisher, who lived in New York, had established the Adoptees' Liberty Movement of America. We haven't understood what this was like for those women who had surrendered children, who felt they'd been let down, badly treated, that society had tricked them into taking their children. And, you know, you can see their point of view. It was very difficult because there are women in the group who were so angry that it was quite difficult to challenge that anger into something productive, um, into changing the law. But that, that was what we managed to do. From the early 1970s, adoption in Australia changed. Numbers changed. Laws changed, but most fundamentally, attitudes changed. There was a sense that people could speak out and perhaps try and craft a life for themselves that suited them better than suited their parents or what somebody else dictated. It was a fortunate but totally serendipitous coming together. It could have happened years before, but it didn't. The fact that it happened in the 70s meant that it didn't need to happen again because the agenda of work that was generated by those people has provided the engine that has driven policies and practices in relation to children for adoption ever since. My interest in starting a community group for other Vietnamese adoptees from around the world came from the fact that very few people understand what it is to have this complex biography. Personally, for me, just not to feel... I was that alone in the world, but also making sure that other adoptees feel a sense of belonging and that newer ones don't grow up with the same sort of feelings of isolation perhaps that the older generation had. I think the applicant process now is much more about education, not just about assessment, because I think there's no doubt adoptive parents love their children profoundly. The changes to adoption over the 1970s were a shift from silence to speaking out. At the start of the decade, adoption was accepted, quietly and without question. Up to the very early 70s, adoption seen as a win-win situation for everybody. For the child, it's seen as a kind of a second chance. Dr Kate Murphy. For childless couples, of course, it's seen as absolutely a win. You have a child who is, in effect, your own. There can be no interference from the biological parents because their parental rights have been terminated. And the other person, of course, for whom it's seen as a positive benefit is the relinquishing mother. At least from the perspective of those who are speaking for her, it's seen that she has escaped the shame of an illegitimate birth and it's hoped that these women can be sort of redeemed and they'll go on to marry and have more children. From the 1940s, 50s, 60s, there was certainly a sense that babies were available and if you wanted to adopt, you could. And I think that was a prevailing view, even to this day, but perhaps weaker now. But through the 1970s and 80s, if as a couple we couldn't have a child, well, you would just adopt one. And there wasn't much thinking, I don't think, about that child is the child of another mother and another father and... We didn't have a very sophisticated thinking about taking a child from one identity within a family and an extended family and a community and a history and placing it in another, a bit like a, a graft on a tree 
and that that was all fine. There was a, a sense that I've ascertained that there was a real right to adopt if you wanted to. Dr Susan Gare of James Cook University in Queensland. After the Second World War in Australia, the number of babies born to single women increased. In the 1960s, more and more were to stay with their mothers. I became pregnant, I was single, and my daughter was born in 1968. I had a great deal of pressure at that time placed on me to place her for adoption, even although I had made the decision to keep my child. Tricia Harper. It fell into four broad arguments. Every child needs two parents. You can't offer two parents. Every child needs a father. You can't offer a father. Every child needs material security, and for most women, they couldn't offer that. And the really killer one was, if you love your child, you'll give your child for adoption to enable your child to have these things. And so the pressures often came from the mother's parents, from other members of the broader family, from broader society. For me, it was some members of the family, some people I met. And that translated into sometimes fairly subtle suggestions. In others, it was more direct than that. It was, well, my husband can't fix your car, which has broken down because... And there'd be, you know, a silence and you knew that this close friend no longer would fix the battery in your car because you had done the wrong thing. I think I have a recollection of the first consent that I took. And I think she was a 15-year-old girl and terrified. And she was just longing to sign that bit of paper and get out of the hospital and get home to her family. That was what was uppermost in her mind. Margaret MacDonald. She worked in adoption in New South Wales for 30 years as a caseworker, a manager and an advisor to the state government. In 2001, she and Audrey Marshall, who'd also worked for decades in children's services, wrote the first history of adoption in Australia, looking into past practice and their own experience. Well, it was always fraught. I don't believe anyone gives up a child easily and um, you were very sensitive to what might be going on. There are people who were deeply distressed and conflicted about it but feeling that they didn't have an alternative. Other women who were sort of well thought out, sad but determined really. But there was always a sizeable proportion of unwed mothers who kept their children. Figures for Victoria suggest about 45% after the war. In New South Wales in 1950, half the ex-nuptial babies were not adopted, and the percentage steadily increased from then on. But their single mothers disappeared into the community, neither seen nor heard. Tricia Harper was a teacher when her daughter was born and at the time of the birth in England. And it was while she was there that she encountered the British Council for the Unmarried Mother and her child. When I came back to Australia, uh, Victoria had nothing in the way of an organisation representing women who were single and pregnant. And I met with a group of other women who had also made the decision as single women to keep and bring up their own children And by 1970, we had formed the Council for the Single Mother and Her Child. And membership was quite elite. It was restricted only to women who were single and had a child of their own. And if you didn't fit that category, you didn't get in. And so it was a self-help group. When you say it was quite elite, were there people who would like to have come in but were excluded because of your criteria? (laughs) I remember the story of one of our other members, uh, Rosemary West, whose daughter was born a year or so before my daughter, And Rosemary was invited along to a group of um, separated parents or lone parents. But when they heard she was single, unmarried, she was told she wasn't eligible. She didn't belong because they didn't want that sort of woman in that group. The ones I remember most clearly were the revocations, when people changed their minds. One particular case, this woman relinquished twins, but she was very uncertain and we looked at all sorts of possibilities. She wasn't particularly young, she was in her 20s, she had a couple of other children. So at the end of the 30 days she decided to revoke her consent and she didn't have anywhere really to live. Children, I think, 
went into temporary foster care for a week or so. And then she again consented to their adoption. She couldn't find a way to keep them. And what was really common for many women who had become pregnant, had told their parents, had decided against a shotgun marriage, which was still a common way out of it, who had decided initially to place their child for adoption and their parents said, well, look, we'll back you, stay at home, live at home, and when you have the baby, we'll support you. And then often around about six or seven months into the pregnancy, the woman would tell her parents that she'd changed her mind and wanted to keep her child. And what was very common at that time was the parents would say, we don't support you if you want to do that. You'll have to go and find somewhere else to live. And so when the Council of Single Mother and Child first got going, probably the single most important service we provided was an accommodation service. I'm for freedom. I'm for moving. It's time to begin. Yes, it's time. Men and women of Australia, the decision we will make for our country on the 2nd of December is a choice between the past and the future. It's time for a new government. In Australia, the federal government changed in 1972 to uh, the Labor, the Whitlam government, which immediately changed the potential for young women to have an income on their own so they weren't dependent on their family. There was such a falling off then because although it wasn't a large amount, it would have made the difference in many cases, even going home to the family. But also, I think even more than the financial thing, which of course was important, the fact that there was that benefit put the whole issue, validated the role of the unmarried mother. that's right. And so that lowered the stigma. The change is very dramatic when it happens. It happens in the 70s, in the first half of the 70s. There's a lead-in period. If you look at women's magazines, there's a lead-in period in which in the feature articles you've got lots of celebrities having love children, which is a good thing, according to the women's magazines. Illegitimacy was also abolished from the late 60s to the early 70s in different states. And to us, again, it just sounds, so what?, But it was a huge moral taint that people wore. It was stamped on everything. But in terms of the women's movement and feminism, we felt we were in there right at the beginning because what we were saying was, you know, here are women who are strong and independent, have the capacity to do all the things in their life that they want to do and that they have the capacity to look after their child, to bring their child up on their own if need be. But it was interesting because in around about 1975, International Women's Year, I think, there was a big conference in Canberra. And interestingly, the National Council of the Single Mother and a Child, albeit a major women's organisation, didn't get invited. And we didn't give it much thought at the time, but I was speaking to another um, strong, prominent feminist a few years later, and she said, oh, do you know why you weren't invited to the conference? And I said, no. And she said, oh, it's because you kept the term mothers and children in your title. And the women's movement at that time saw itself as being about women, separate from families, separate from family responsibilities. So another interesting insight into where we were seen to fit in the women's movement. But it's through a series of conferences that real changes in adoption were to take place. Adoption had always been a state matter in Australia. But in 1976, the first national adoption conference took place, organised by two senior social workers from Victoria and New South Wales. Cliff Picton, who founded the social work program at Monash University, was there. The first conference brought to the table, I guess, a range of issues. And one was the regulation of adoption in general and the fact that in response to this changing social climate of a declining number of children, and you have to speak in fairly crude terms of supply and demand, the supply of children was drying up and could not match the demand. And at the same time, the 
conference provided for the very first time a platform for Aboriginal people to express their grave concerns and disquiet about the adoption of Aboriginal children by non-Aboriginal parents. My brown skin baby, they take him away. In the early 1970s, there is growing concern among some social workers about the placement of Aboriginal children in white foster families and white adoptive families. Social workers, however, were out of kilter with the wider community. So, for example, I was publicly criticised by the Victorian Ombudsman for what he saw as obstructing the adoption of two Aboriginal boys from Lake Tyres by a white family. Dorothy Scott, a young social worker in the 1970s, now the director of the National Centre for Child Protection. There was nothing I could do to prevent adoption because of consents, but I wanted written into the adoption order a statement that the boys may have rights in relation to their birthright at Lake Tyres. As a symbol of their Indigenous identity, the adoptive parents objected to that delay and the ombudsman found that I had obstructed that adoption. That is very typical of the wider community attitude. During the 1950s, 60s and into the 70s, around 20 to 25,000 Indigenous children were adopted out into white families. Historian Christine Cheetah. She estimates about 17% of the stolen generation were adopted. Within the, the story of the stolen generation, adoption only plays quite a small role, but not an insignificant role when you actually say, right, 20,000, that is a very big number, especially when you're talking about only two decades, which is why I think it actually plays such a big role in the consciousness of Indigenous people, because it's the most recent thing that's happened. And these are the children they totally lost contact with. Most of the children who were adopted were light-skinned children so that they could be passed off as being white. There are cases where sort of the white parents have actually expressed absolute horror that they were involved in this without knowing about it. They started by adopting sort of older children but throughout the 1950s and into the 60s the age progressively lowered until in the 1960s it was mainly babies that they were taking. Most of the children were the children of women that had gone to hospital. Another group of children would have been adopted off mission stations or out of institutions. My wife and I had incompatible RH factors in our blood, which in those days meant that any child after the first at any rate was a great risk. We lost our second baby and we just immediately thought in terms of adopting. So we um, had a child who came to us when he was, I think, four days old, and that was, as it were, two. Um, but then the question arose of um, two seemed a very small family. So about 19... 59 or 60, I think. We said, well, let's get a family out of an orphanage just for Christmas. This was when we were in Perth. We went round various children's homes. Finally, the authorities said to us in a sort of bated breath way, you wouldn't, I suppose, consider taking an Aboriginal child for Christmas. So we said, yes, we would certainly. And that was what led us eventually to adopt our Aboriginal child, Frank, who came to us when he was three and a half. Frank was not a light-skinned child. He was dark, very clearly Indigenous. We were the, if you like, the classic naive white small-l liberals. I mean... Um, uh, of course, why not? I mean, why? what would it matter if the skin was, was brown? When we talked about adoption, we were advised by a sort of, by a child psychologist that it was very, very difficult to have an 
an effective cross-cultural adoption. Um, but we wanted children. Uh, we were just convinced that love could conquer everything. And uh, you know, that was part of our learning experience, that the the social pressures which the family met were just far more than we had ever envisaged. I think the adoption of Indigenous children should be actually seen against what was going on in the whole adoption process. In the 1950s when they were adopting sort of Indigenous children, sort of a lot of white children were being adopted sometimes against the wishes of their mothers, especially if they were single mothers. Some of the mothers had a piece of paper put in front of them, they signed the piece of paper, and the next thing they knew they'd lost their children. The same thing that was happening to Indigenous women was also happening to some single white women. And it was sort of all done on the basis that sort of they were rescuing the child from a life of poverty and they were going to put them into a family that would look after them. Before, when they were placed in institutions, there was a fair bit of solidarity and a lot of the friendships they made in the institution they still have. I'd gone to a meeting with a friend who happened to work at Bethany Baby's home in Geelong. She mentioned a little baby they had that probably would stay with them because most of the babies would be adopted out and I might add that we were fairly involved with the Aborigines Advancement League in Geelong. We'd been involved in that for quite a number of years and this little baby, he was an Aboriginal baby and so anyway we saw him and decided that we would like to take him home and I think we had to go for an interview. I think it was the same day, maybe it was the next day and about two o'clock that afternoon we got a phone call to say we could come and get David. So the children came home from school. We said, hop in the car, we're going to get your new brother. What kind of questions did you get from him as time went on? When he was very little, I would sort of read him stories, talk to him and whatever, and, and then occasionally I'd say, you, you did have another mum. And then when he was old enough to talk, he'd say, what was my mother's name? And I'd always say, Piggy. I was so grateful about this. When we signed the papers, the lawyer went out of the room. I don't know if he did it on purpose, but we saw her name. And I said to my husband, remember that name, remember that name. But I forgot to say, she was told that David had died. When David was born at the uh, Geelong Hospital, she was told that the baby had died. Much of the thinking about adoption in Australia has been influenced by ideas from North America. Professor Karen Bulcom of McMaster University in Canada has looked particularly at adoption across race. Domestic transracial adoption in the United States is never a really widespread phenomenon. Culturally, it's massively important. My colleague Karen Dubinsky has written about transracial adoptive families with parents who thought of their child's skin colour as a kind of a tan. The sort of sense that different on the outside but we're all the same inside. And that can be a very sincere and very well-meaning perspective but doesn't deal with the challenges that that child's going to have as they grow up in a society that is racist. By the time we get into the 1960s, we are starting to get into um, more nationalist phases of the civil rights movement in the United States, and that brings with it more of a critique of what does it mean to place a black child in a white family. Things culminate in the quite famous moment in 1972 when you get a policy statement from the National Association of Black Social Workers who refer to the transracial placement of African-American children as a form of cultural genocide. There was quite a lot of American literature by the mid-1970s and late-1970s on transracial adoption. Some of us were beginning to read that literature and some black activists are talking about that as cultural genocide. That was shocking to us to hear that critique and so there was a very polarised view 
where the child's cultural identity was beginning to be given enormous primacy. At the 1976 National Child Protection Conference, people like Auntie Molly Dyer would speak about what we would now call the cultural identity confusion and genealogical bewilderment of the stolen generation. Stolen generations was not a term used then. This was new, it was confronting, but we very quickly became very wary of placing Indigenous children in white foster families and began to look for Indigenous foster parents. For the first time, adoption was being peeled back. Suspicion started to circulate that, rather than being a social fix-it, it might have made some matters worse. In this second act of the adoption narrative, all of the cast acquired speaking parts. Professor Shirley Swain. Act two is a very good description of what happened from the mid-1970s. The key players are, firstly, the people who've been involved in adoption in any of its elements who are now all grown up. The children adopted in the 50s and 60s, the relinquishing mothers from that time, and adoptive parents are organising by this stage too. And they start being heard in what were understood as professional conferences and they start claiming that they're also the professionals in the area of adoption because they've lived it. And they stand up and they disrupt and they change the discourse quite dramatically. I was prepared to stand up and say I'm an adopted person. Pauline Lee. In fact, there was an article in the Geelong Advertiser, I think about 1976, in which I spoke about my experience as an adopted person and why I felt that adopted people should have the right to know their birth origins. And there was a photograph of me, and that was was a huge coming out. I felt as though I was walking naked down Rural Street. Of course, it wasn't very long before people contacted me and said, can I talk to you? I gave up a child for adoption. My sister gave up a child for adoption. My daughter gave up a child for adoption. Suddenly people were in contact with me who lived in Melbourne, who lived in other parts of Victoria, who lived in other parts of Australia. A room was found in the creche at the Wesley Church in Yarra Street, Geelong. It was the room that was used on Sundays for the children's Sunday school. There were little chairs and tables and... People often felt like children all over again, just sitting down on these low chairs and talking about something that had happened so long ago. Post-Adoption Resource Centre. Information sheet number 10. Writing to an adopted person. My name is Jenny Burrows. When I was 19, I gave birth to a baby girl. I decided that she should have two parents. I'd been raised as a Catholic, and um, so I decided to sign adoption papers. For seven years, I thought, I've done the right thing, I've done a wonderful thing, and then I met a group of mothers. And they actually helped me search for my child. They said, sometimes people put a birth notice in the paper. And the birth notice is a little bit odd because it doesn't say thank you to the doctors or the hospital and it's in a bit late, like it's about three weeks after the birth, or it'll say a special gift from God. These are things that these birth notices suggest that it's an adoption. Anyway, so they said what you can do is look for about a month after the birth of your baby. You had your baby in Townsville, so she was probably sent to Brisbane. So I went to the State Library and we found it. It was three weeks late and that department had told me that there was an older brother in the family that they had already adopted a boy so it said a sister for Max, that's, I'm just making up that name, a sister for Max and it gave her weight mm-hmm. and the date of birth. So that was something that I could follow up. Probably from about from the early 70s mm-hmm. we were getting some degree of feedback mm-hmm. weren't we, from the mothers and It was after I became the principal officer, so that would have been in 73. I think that was the first time that we'd had a mother write saying, could she have a photograph of the baby? 
And there'd not been any requests like this before? There'd not been, no. It sticks in my mind. I remember just what a daring thing it seemed. I mean, it seems ridiculous now, but for us to make this request of the adoptive parents whose understanding was that they had the baby and was born to them. What happened to this first request for a photograph? Well, the adoptive parents sent a, a photograph and some news of the baby and, you know, that established the process. And then within a short time, that became an established part of the agency expectation of adoptive parents. In the early 1980s, Two researchers in Western Australia did the first Australian study of the impact of relinquishment, and indeed really the first worldwide study. And that showed that up to 30 years after the birth of their child, the grief for the woman who'd relinquished the child was, if anything, greater than it had been when they'd given them up at birth. So we know that the grief and the trauma is incredibly strong and, if anything, increases over time. I always had this question from my early experiences with children in children's home about, you know, how isolated a service it was then, that child be adopted, that's it, whatever happens, too bad. So I had those questions, but was reading that study, the Western Australian study, which made me think, well, I think we've missed a lot of this. We've missed a lot of this. We haven't understood what this was like for those women who had surrendered children, who felt they'd been let down, badly treated, that society had tricked them into taking their children. And, you know, you can see their point of view. We wish now, as social workers, we'd had enough imagination to agitate for services for those mothers so that they did have more choices or at least more support. Once they'd surrendered the child, there were no follow-up services, which, you know, in our more enlightened years, seems very cruel. Post-Adoption Resource Centre. Information sheet number 11. Writing to a birth mother. My name is Margaret Green and I'm an adoptee. I didn't find out I was adopted until just before I was 22 and for the ensuing 22 years I did nothing about it. When I was in my probably early 40s and my sons were in their sort of late primary, early high school, I said to my sons, oh, you know, by the way, you know, Nanny and Pa adopted me. And my youngest said, well, why don't you want to find your mother? In retrospect, I think that was possibly a trigger for my emotions doing something further down the line. You are more likely to gain a favourable response if you make your first approach through a letter. It is often experienced as less intrusive than a phone call and gives the person time to adjust to your contact. So I said, um, I'm writing in the hope you may be able to assist me. If you are the correct person, we were very close many years ago, but due to circumstances, lost contact. Then I put, I was born on the 22nd of the 5th, 1949, in Marrickville, New South Wales. And on my original birth certificate, she had named me Patricia. So I signed Margaret, and then I put in brackets Patricia. And then I put my telephone number underneath it to make it easy for her to ring me back. (laughs) Because if it was me, I knew I'd pick up the phone rather than... Right. Maybe it might be her response too. And I took it to the post office. I paid for registered post plus an acknowledgement slip because that way I would know it got into her hand. So I would know if I hadn't received a response, I would know it was because she was choosing not to respond, not because she hadn't received the letter. And I thought that was important to know that. Did you imagine what your mother might be like? No, I didn't. There's a very common thing that adoptees will either consider their mothers like the Wicked Witch of the West or the Fairy Princess, you know, that's sort of their imagination. The only image I had was somebody smallish, which is quite insane because I'm five foot ten, but I grew up in a small family, so in my experience, mothers were small people. Information regarding the name of their birth parent was not something adopted people were entitled to until after the laws of the 1960s were changed. And while there was strong support for the reform, there was also opposition. There were public meetings held and those meetings were often filled with a great deal of hostility. 
There were many people who felt very strongly that the adoption law should never be reformed, including adopted people and birth parents and adoptive parents, of course, who were vehemently opposed to adoption law reform. So there was a real struggle. Let me tell you, it was really difficult. And um, in fact, I recall attending one public meeting and after the meeting, one of the people who was very opposed to adoption law reform walked past and spat at me. In that ultimate act of niceness, there was a very dark shadow. And the adoptive parents, initially, were shielded from that dark shadow by the convention of confidentiality, that you can't know about it. And why a number of us worked so hard during the 70s and 80s was to remove the double standards. Uh, There's been a succession of groups, you know, typical women's group stuff. (laughs) So you have splits in the groups. One would be born out of another one. There'd be a breakaway person who'd say, you're not radical enough for me, or you're too radical. And then they'd form another group and some people would go and join them. And So it was that kind of political history. But what I'm really proud of is that at the right times, we managed to make an impact. Um, regardless of what the name of the group was. The mobilisation happened when it needed to, and people forgave each other all of their sins for those few moments where we had to be in front of a committee. In 1978, in Victoria, an Adoption Legislation Review Committee was set up to look at changes in adoption law and practice, and I was appointed to that. And it was a very slow process. We took five years to present a report But one of the values of time is that you can not only achieve change in the law, but it allows you to bring people with you. When that report was presented in 1983 and led to legislation in 1984, that legislation went through supported by all parties. The law said automatic right retrospectively to all people who'd ever been placed for adoption at age 18, at adulthood, and it allowed conditional access to other parties with the consent of the others. So a registering mother could apply for access to information about her child. And Victoria was the first state in Australia to amend its legislation that broadly. Victoria was the first state to reform adoption with regards to secrecy. The other states followed over the next 25 years. The new laws have also addressed the rights of potential relinquishing parents. Their numbers declined dramatically from the early 1970s. Not so, though, the figures for people applying to adopt. The numbers of prospective adoptive parents continued to rise, but there simply were not newborn babies to be placed with them. Professor Denise Cuthbert. And into this heady mix, we have the end of the Vietnam War... And in April 1975, the Saigon baby lived. This is the national news from the ABC, read by James Dibble. More than 200 children orphaned by the Vietnam War arrived in Sydney this afternoon to begin a new life in Australian homes. They will stay in Sydney until final adoption formalities are completed and they can be placed with their new care. The Saigon baby lift was in every sense an extraordinary event. And it was treated in the media as an extraordinary event. They were called the war waifs. The image of them all lined up in these little cardboard cartons wrapped up. It's really quite remarkable. You felt like you were doing something uh, quite positive, something that Australia could sort of be proud of. Everyone was really enthusiastic about it. There was sustained and quite eloquent opposition to the baby lift at the time from a number of sources in Australia on a range of grounds, many of which highlight the kinds of themes that have haunted inter-country adoption since those early days. What about in Vietnam itself? The departing regime and the incoming regime both signalled their opposition to the removal of the children and certainly to the removal being permanent. The push to adopt and the great imaginative hold that adoption had with all of its myths of transformation and all of its myths of rescue and redemption 
you can see the power and seductiveness of that being played out, certainly in the media accounts at the time. The first of the orphans to be handed over has now had two days to settle into her new surroundings in Adelaide. Four-year-old Nguyen T. Zian Mai has been renamed Michelle by her adopted parents. How's she settling in? Settling in very, very well. She's laughing and... During the Vietnam War, there were quite a few children that were adopted overseas to countries like France. As the American involvement and their allies like Australia became more present, those countries started to adopt. And I came out with a, a small stream of children before that baby lift. Indigo Williams-Willing, the Australian founder of Adopted Vietnamese International. The end of the Vietnam War was probably a very unusual time for many Australians, not just those who adopted for the first time, Australians got to see a conflict in Southeast Asia where there were a lot of casualties and there were a lot of controversies. People were feeling very emotional towards what was going on. To the best of their intentions at the time, I think bringing out war orphans from such a terrible conflict made sense to them. However, after the event, it really is important to then look at exactly what the consequences of those acts were. In anniversary sort of celebrations, I think it's very important to recognise the good side of baby lift. But if we're trying to compare it somehow as to how to do adoptions today, we need to be a little bit more careful and critical about what went on then. The people who were wanting to adopt children from overseas were wanting to rush in and have it all done very quickly and were very impatient with what they saw as obstructive bureaucracy, because the social workers were saying, hey, hang on, if you're going to be a parent of somebody else's child, we have to be sure that you are a suitable and fit person. So that led to a collision. And sometimes that bubbled up into the media. Many inter-country adoption applicants were not as subservient as infertile couples seeking to adopt. And this is a new phase in adoption. It's the time when adoptive parents and applicants start to gain political strength by coming together in groups and associations and pushing for changes in practices and policies. Adoption agencies and social workers saw themselves as preventing children inappropriately being placed for adoption who may not have been legally and ethically available for adoption. They also were wary of the lack of appreciation of the complexities of adopting a child who may have spent their first few years in an institution and who may have carried the emotional scars of that in terms of their capacity for attachment. Feelings ran very high on both sides. And we had prospective parents going off under their own steam to country X and arriving back at Tullamarine with children and being refused permission to bring them in. That was typical of the time. There were few rules and regulations. The upshot of this was that we formed, we being a group of concerned people, myself and others, got together with the adoption agencies and with the associations of families that had formed, because these were very well-resourced, intelligent people who knew how to get things done, they developed quite a good system by the end of about five years from those beginnings. I'm an inter-country adoptive parent. I have children adopted from the Philippines. With my husband, we adopted children during the late 80s and 90s. Um, we adopted them as infants. It's a government-to-government program. So the days where children were coming in just on airlifts or where people were going over and living in a range of countries, you can't get visas for those children. So in fact, it's tightened up and I think that's a real change. It is a controversial area. Are you aware of the kind of oppositions that have existed perhaps in the past? I think there is still opposition to inter-country adoption. I think people would see us taking children from mothers that really should be better supported in their own country to care for their children. And I would be the first to say I wish my children could be with their birth mothers. But my children would be growing up in a children's home. They wouldn't be with their families if inter-country adoption stopped today. 
The voices in adoption discourse are many. And now much of the academic research into adoption is done by people who have a personal involvement. Vietnamese adoptee Indigo Williams-Willing. There's a major study in the 1980s of 100 families that had Vietnamese children and they were mostly under five. And the findings from that study were that those children were getting on fine with their families and settling in well. And there really wasn't that many studies in Australia of Vietnamese adoptees until maybe 25 years later in 2000 that sort of asked various adoptees about their experiences. And one of the most common themes is that these adoptees did experience racism that they felt very ashamed, not only their looks, but also their cultural background of their birth country, that they were from this awful country where they had to be rescued from and therefore ashamed of their background. Knowing that the studies were so old, the academic studies, I chose to do a master's on Vietnamese adoptees, and it was quite a small study. However, I found from my cohorts that, once again, racism was quite a common theme. I really didn't actually feel racially different to my white family, until I entered school. And it was then that I started getting questions about why physically we didn't look the same. Some of the sort of general childhood racial taunts like Ching Chong Chinaman or, you know, slanty eyes sort of thing. And what compounds the problem with trying to deal with that is if your own parents physically look like the people that are taunting you and don't have you know, much experience with racism themselves. So at, a, at some kind of a loss, how to, I don't know, help you strategize against that, sort of build your self-esteem as a person that isn't white. Roots are really important for adopted people, so I'm really grateful that we actually had that insight. And so for us, things like keeping our children's name was really important, whereas once upon a time, adoptive parents were encouraged to create this new life for a child, and that also meant changing their name so that they were embraced into a new family. And I think we can't be critical of adoptive parents. They did what was culturally accepted at the time, which was to take children into a new family and create a whole new family. I think we have that insight that our children, they don't come with nothing. They came with their names. And so for us, their names were a gift from their birth mothers. And so we've kept their names. It seems like an intimate and personal act, but in fact, it has massive public significance. What we're talking about here is a place where, through the intervention of the state, you have the literal construction of family. So that paces so much freight on it, like the attempt to capture in policy what we mean by family, identity, nation, motherhood, citizenship. It's all, this is one of those rare moments where it's, it's actually being sort of legislated, written out, um, goes through the judicial system. It's very, very fraught. There are also really difficult to deal with ethical questions about whose interests are being served, who we prioritize. So you have this tendency to narrate the story of adoption as either rescue or kidnap. And going to either one of those poles doesn't help us a lot, and it takes our attention away from really examining the sort of structural situation. Why is it that the best choice a mother could make or a family could make is to relinquish their child? We have increasing evidence emerging from some of the major so-called sending countries in intercountry adoption, and I'm referring here specifically to a country like Korea, that the conditions under which many of those Korean children are placed for adoption are highly reminiscent, redolent, of the conditions endured by unwed mothers in a place like Australia in the 1950s and 1960s. Now, to call the relinquishment of a child under such circumstances the result of the free choice of the mother is a very, very problematic thing to argue. I'm curious as to why so many applicants choose inter-country adoption when really we know that there are many children in Victoria who need place, local placement. And I think the fear is that many of the children needing local placements we know have backgrounds of drug and alcohol or mental illness in their families. And so people are fearful of that. And I think inter-country adoption, people have no, no knowledge of what the children's backgrounds are. But I have to say, I think the reality is there's probably similar backgrounds in those overseas countries. And truth, the urge to find it and the willingness to conceal it, has trailed behind adoption since its inception. 
The right to know how a personal story begins is now acknowledged in Australian law. But it comes at a cost. Financially, as every state government contributes to post-adoption support services, and emotionally, there's a plethora of self-help groups across Australia where men and women come together to tell their stories. Yeah, I can't work out how you found out all that information. How, how can we well, so listening to birth mothers has helped me in a, in a big way to understand my mother's own individual circumstances and story in a way that I never did before. The only way I can describe to you what it's like for an adopted person, if you went to see a film, complicated, long story, but you arrived late and missed the first five minutes... It's a bit like that being adopted. You don't know how it all began. The day that we all got together, she just had all these albums and photos. <laughs> she said to me, um, we used to celebrate Bianca's birthday every year. And I said, who's Bianca? I've got another sister. <laughs> she said, no, Bianca was you. We named you Bianca. Actually, I found out where my daughter was when she was 14. We got in contact when she was 17. She's now 30, but I have not met her. I really do think that you can't push relationships and it's got to be when she's ready. I hope that my children will find their birth families. And I think they are growing up in Australia where that is expected. Quite recently, a lot of the Vietnamese adoptees have been searching out their birth parents and finding them. If you're a, a local person that's adopted and you go to search for your birth mother, You'll generally have laws in place, you'll have some sort of mediation in place, but when it comes to overseas adoptions, we don't have those things. In some cases, people have put out advertisements for their birth parents in the local newspapers in Vietnam and had positive results from that. In the very best cases, it really is quite moving to hear about these reunions and a very special thing to know that these families, after 25 years or more, have reunited happily. And that's something that, you know, me as an adoptee, I... I you know, would hope for one day.